Welcome to a special edition of BioCentury This Week. I'm Jeff Cranmer, Executive Editor of BioCentury, and I'm joined by... Simon Fishburne, Editor-in-Chief. Steve Usden, Washington Editor. Selena Koch, Executive Editor. Today, we're digging into the FDA documents released late Tuesday that summarize the agency's review of Biogen Alzheimer's drug, aducanumab. Now, the data package supporting the drug's accelerated approval was incredibly complex. It involved a large number of post hoc analyses open to different conclusions. Members of FDA's Peripheral and Central Nervous System Advisory Committee, which met in November to discuss the application, came to a single conclusion, however. The drug should not receive full approval. After the advisory committee, FDA decided to grant accelerated approval, a topic it had led the ADCOM to believe was not under consideration. FDA's decision has created a firestorm. Acting FDA Commissioner Janet Woodcock strongly defended the decision in an exclusive interview with BioCentury last week. In her interview with Steve, Woodcock said the documents would explain why FDA went all in on the amyloid hypothesis and would show how it has made its decision. We've got the documents now, and Selena, you've been pouring through them. Do they shed any light on why the agency decided amyloid clearance is an appropriate endpoint? FDA did provide some insight into how it's thinking about the role of amyloid in the disease and its likelihood to predict clinical benefit. And it's thinking rests on three things, two of which really surprised me because I thought they're inappropriate as the basis for calling amyloid clearance a circuit endpoint. And then the third one, which is touched on much more lightly in the documents, I think is probably the most compelling bit of evidence in there. So the first one is just that everybody takes for granted over there at the agency, it seems, that amyloid is the fundamental pathology that leads to Alzheimer's disease. And because they believe that, they think it's likely that if you clear it, there'll be clinical benefit. Now, this is highly controversial in the field, and Peter Stein notes in his memorandum that it's clear that the relationship between levels of amyloid in the brain and symptoms is very unclear. The literature shows that. Yet, he and everybody else kept restating over and over again that this is central to the disease, mostly because the field has taken to defining the disease like in terms of diagnosis by the presence of amyloid in the brain. But once you do that, you create a circular logic where... Anybody who wants to say, back up the idea that amyloid causes a disease only needs to point to the diagnostic criteria and say, well, look, the disease is defined by it. It must be the central driver. Yeah, I have to say, I found this kind of disappointing because there's an absolute circularity of the logic. And I say it's disappointing because we don't want that from FDA. What they're saying is, we acknowledge, I think it was Peter Stein, we acknowledge that there is disagreement in the field over amyloid as the cause of this disease, but it is. So, yeah, I think it is. People use it as a biomarker, so it must be. So, yeah, yeah, you know, I, I, I think the other thing that's very interesting about this is that FDA could have, and many argue that it should have presented the evidence for accelerated approval to an advisory committee or to some other scientific forum. They could provide public advice on whether the amyloid clearance is reasonably likely to predict clinical benefit. And it didn't do that. And I think it didn't do it for a simple reason. It knows that if it had done that, it wouldn't have achieved scientific consensus. 
Dr. Woodcock told me that FDA officials are acutely aware of the controversy, and of course they are. So they just decided to make the decision themselves. Yeah. If you think about the natural history of disease, when amyloid is present in patients, if you choose to define it as an amyloid disease, then you would say it's present in all patients, but not everybody thinks about it that way. But when it's present, it starts aggregating decades before there's any symptoms. So the idea that you could just clear it and within a year, see symptoms stop, to me is not self-evident, right? I would want to see that backed up. Right, because I think that the relevance of this is not directly whether it's related to the pathology of the disease. And everybody thinks that there's probably some relationship between amyloid and, and Alzheimer's disease, but whether removing it is reasonably likely to predict clinical benefit. And, you know, Selena, you talked about three lines of evidence. So the first one was, well, amyloid as a cause of the disease, it just yeah. is the circular logic. <laughs> so the, yeah, yeah. The, I mean, the they're almost, they're almost quite disappointing if you ask me, but go ahead with that one. That's right. So then I thought it would be inappropriate if FDA used Biogen's own efficacy data as support for saying, okay, now it's appropriate to use amyloid as a surrogate endpoint. Now we know. Because, well, Biogen's efficacy data are in doubt, and even the agency itself admits that, and that is why they went the accelerated approval route, which acknowledges that clinical benefit is still uncertain. So now you're taking data with uncertain clinical benefit and holding it up and saying, this is the data that we're now using to say, for all amyloid-targeting drugs from here on out, they can use this surrogate endpoint. So FDA's second line of evidence is also circular because that's relying on Biogen's efficacy data to support the idea that amyloid is a surrogate endpoint. And yet the efficacy data wasn't strong enough to support a full approval. That's absolutely right. Normally what you'd want is there to be an already established correlation between the surrogate endpoint and the clinical outcome. And you'd wanna see it across multiple drugs, multiple trials, multiple companies. Now there's exceptions to that, right? We saw this with Duchenne muscular dystrophy and dystrophin. There you have a genetic disease where the cause of the disease is known. All patients have it because they have a mutation and the biomarker directly reflects that mutation. It's a straight line you can draw between them. But when that's not the case, which is not the case here, normally you'd want that other standard of correlation shown multiple times, multiple drugs. And here they're saying, okay, these data aren't good enough to approve the drug. The clinical benefit is unclear. Yet we're saying that now going forward, we can use amyloid as a surrogate endpoint because of these uncertain efficacy data. So the question I would have is going forward, if you have another situation where you have equivocal clinical data, but solid data on amyloid clearance, in that circumstance, would FDA approve another drug? Would it give an accelerated approval to another drug in that same circumstance? I don't see how they could not. I suppose they could say that the need has changed because we have an amyloid agent. Now we have a quote-unquote disease-modifying therapy. But apart from that, I don't see how they couldn't. And the default, at least in cancer, is to say that a drug that has accelerated approval isn't considered standard of care so it doesn't block accelerated approval of another drug for the same condition. And the thinking behind that is that they want to create incentives for companies to complete their confirmatory trials and get standard approvals for drugs that received accelerated approval initially. Got it. 
I just want to make one more point because you did refer to dystrophin in DMD. And I think it's important to remind people that actually FDA's decision there also caused a lot of, let's use the word consternation or disagreement because they didn't prove clinical efficacy. So even though there's a very clear biological link between dystrophin and DMD, the level of that marker, the amount of dystrophin you have to produce in order to see a clinical benefit still isn't known. And the decision to approve those drugs by Sarepta was highly controversial. And yeah. that, that link is much clearer even than the amyloid one. And what we've seen since then is more accelerated approvals based on the dystrophin endpoint. And we still don't know what that threshold is for clinical meaningfulness. Because Sarepta hasn't completed the confirmatory trials that they promised to do years ago. And that raises the question for the amyloid clearance of whether FDA will learn from that experience. One, is it going to set a kind of a minimum threshold for the level of amyloid clearance that's required in order to get an accelerated approval for an Alzheimer's drug? And if it does, will it do that in an explicit way so that drug developers and patient groups know in advance what the target is for that? What will they base it on? I just want to go quickly because, Selena, there was a third line of argument, which was maybe the most robust. I think it is, yeah. So FDA looked at six other drugs that have been tested in the clinic that are meant to lower amyloid levels. And of course, most of those drugs, as we all know, failed to provide a clinical benefit. But we do have some more recent examples and earlier stage trials, phase two trials from Eli Lilly's Donanumab and Azi and Biogen's and 2401 that were named in the documents. Both of these did a better job of clearing amyloid than the agents that have come before and that have failed large phase three trials. And they showed signs of clinical benefit. Now, whether those hold up in phase three or whether they shrink the way aducanumab's efficacy seemed to between its phase one B and phase three remains to be seen. But at least there you have independent validation from other agents. The interesting thing about that, of course, is that if a sponsor were to go to FDA and say, I want you to approve my drug to give it full approval or accelerated approval. And it's based in part on the results of a phase two trial that haven't been confirmed in a phase three trial for another drug that hasn't been approved. FDA would say that's too flimsy. You know, you can't do that. So FDA is doing something here that is pretty clear that they wouldn't allow uh, a sponsor to do if it were bringing a product before the agency for an approval decision. And that's the big question. What does this mean going forward for the standards for surrogate endpoints for a whole broad range of indications? And I think that's interesting because when I spoke with Dr. Woodcock, she said, oh, don't over-extrapolate this. Don't over-interpret it. It's a single instance. You can't interpret it across the whole agency. You can't say that it's going to apply to other drugs and other circumstances. On the other hand, this decision wasn't just made by the Office of Neuroscience. The FDA convened a group of seven of their, you know, wise owls or whatever, you know, top people center directors and Richard Pazder at the Oncology Center of Excellence, Peter Marks, the head of Sieber, Patricia Cavazzoni, the head of Cedar, and Bob Temple and some others. And they signed off on this decision. So yes, Dr. Woodcock says it's not going to create a precedent that should be applied even for other Alzheimer's drugs necessarily, she said, and certainly not for drugs in other classes. On the other hand, the decision was made by a group of people who were brought together in part to be able to create precedent and ensure consistency across the agency in the way that it handles these kinds of circumstances. 
Yeah, Steve, what do you think the agency should have done differently? Also, how often does that happen, Steve? That's a sign of how seriously they took this, I would think. I don't know in numbers how often it happens. It doesn't happen often, but they do bring these kind of panels together to discuss particularly difficult or, or thorny issues. So it's not like that's without precedent. What should FDA have done? In some sense, we'll know in five years, right? You know, did they make the right decision here or not? That's one way to look at it. The other way to look at it is to say in terms of process, what should they have done differently? What they could have done differently is to have been much more transparent about their intention to use amyloid clearance as a surrogate endpoint for approval. And they could have sought external guidance and input into whether it should be acceptable as a surrogate endpoint. I think the, the second thing that it, it could have done, and many would argue it should have done, is that it should have done a much better job of defining the population who should use aducanumab. I think that they've just kind of thrown that out to the payer community and the physician community and the caregiver community to figure it out on their own. And that's a disappointment to a lot of people. It's even a disappointment to some of the Alzheimer's groups who were lobbying in favor of approval of aducanumab. They've come out now and they've said that there are two things that disturb them. One is the lack of guidance on the population and, of course, the price, which is something that FDA didn't have any influence over. And, and that's yeah. another significant difference between the DMD decision and this decision, Steve. With this, we're talking about tens of millions of patients who could potentially receive this, whereas DMD, it's you know far less than that. It's a rare disease drug. I have yeah, to say, absolutely. I've never had as much sympathy for payers as I have over this, <laughs> where people are saying they've left it up to payers to make this really thorny decision. In this case, the main payer is us, right? It's well, American that's... taxpayers because 80% of the population is on Medicare. I think the fact that they haven't restricted the population to those who have amyloid just shows how they're thinking about, again, the role of amyloid in the disease. They're thinking it is the key thing to the disease. It is like Distraven and DMD. Therefore, every patient should be eligible for this treatment. But of course, we know that a very large fraction of patients with suspected Alzheimer's who have the clinical symptoms that you associate with Alzheimer's don't have amyloid in the brain. And this is precisely why pharmas have taken to requiring a positive amyloid PET scan for their trials. I think there is an angle. I definitely think the scientific basis of the decision is very questionable, but it looks to me as if you could call it a gamble. FDA has taken the approach that it probably is amyloid and it wants to get products on the market. Like you said, Steve, if five years down the road, this product and two others are approved and they begin to make an impact on Alzheimer's disease and produce clinical benefit, FDA's decision in retrospect will seem like a very good one, even if the way it got there isn't appreciated right now. And I think that is the strategy that they've taken. And if they don't work, I suppose... You think we'll ever know? can weather that. The FDA is prepared to weather that storm. That raises a very interesting point, which is that it would be really important to put some kind of study in place now or some kind of, of registry, some way to evaluate whether the patients who are receiving aducanumab actually experience any kind of slowdown in the progression of their disease. And if the answer is that whatever benefit they're getting is too subtle to detect on any kind of a test, then I think most people would then conclude that it wasn't worth giving it to them in the first place. 
it'll certainly be impossible to detect on a patient by patient basis. Yeah, it's only going to be seen at a population level. Yeah, it's a natural experiment. There's going to be a large number of patients who are going to get it. There's going to be a large number of very similar patients who aren't going to get it. And if five years from now, you look at those two populations and you can't detect a difference, then it's going to be very difficult to argue that this was something that was worth doing. And how will you get it through, mostly through real world data, like claims data, or I, are you just relying think... on Biogen's population health trial? Data. I would think that since this is going to be paid for principally by Medicare, that there's an opportunity for Medicare to put some kind of data tracking in place, something that is more granular than what you're going to get from the regular electronic health records, and that is more reliable maybe than what you would get from Biogen's clinical trial or the post-market surveillance that they're going to do. All right. I've heard some chatter, Steve and, and Selena, that we're expecting additional documents and that FDA released these just to get something explaining their decision out there as quick as possible. Is there another shoe to drop? Is anything that's coming going to move the needle? Doubt it. Not with respect to convincing skeptics that they made the right call. You can do additional analyses tell you're blue in the face. At the end of the day, that's never going to overcome the fundamental challenges, which is that these two phase three trials were terminated for futility. So at that 78-week time point, they were highly incomplete data, and one of the two trials bombed. <laughs> it was a failure. And so you can keep doing more post-hoc analyses, or you can put them into nice-looking charts and, and put them out, but it's not going to resolve that issue. Yeah, I agree. I, I don't see any additional data that FDA is going to put out now, fundamentally changing the way that people look at this. All right, let's see what these additional documents, if any, bring. We'll certainly continue to watch this story. It's not going away anytime soon. That's all we have time for this week. Selena, Steve, Simone, thanks for digging in here. I'm sure our listeners are appreciative to get the lowdown. All of BioCentury's podcasts are available on Spotify, Stitcher, Apple, and Google. Kendall Square Orchestra provides the music for our podcast. The group connects science and technology professionals and other members of the greater Boston community to collaborate, innovate, and inspire through music while supporting causes related to healthcare and education. <laughs>